Welcome to Faith Seeking Understanding. I'm John Green, the host of Faith Seeking Understanding. I'm glad to be here today. Glad to be here on this gorgeous day in Western North Carolina where I live. Um, wonderful, perfect day. Not a cloud in the sky. Sun's out. It's the upper 70s. Couldn't get any nicer than it is. But there's still not a lot of activity. There's some life. We took a drive yesterday, went over to uh, Upper East Tennessee and drove around a little bit just to get out and, and see the country again, begin to, to live again. It's been a long, long season. Uh, Lent lasted four weeks longer than normal. And so it's still not there yet where we are. We, we may open up next week and begin to, to have a little bit more life in our life. Uh, we're just not quite there yet, though, but it, it's beautiful here. I'm excited about what's to come. I'm excited about this. Um, but there's still a lot of fear in the world. Man, is there a lot of fear in the world. I see it. I hear it. I see it in social media. I see it uh, when I talk to my, some of my friends. And it, and it troubles me. But there's a Christian response in that. And that's what I want to talk about here on the fourth Sunday at Easter. The lessons we have to deal with this week are Nehemiah uh, 9, verses 6 to 15, 1 Peter 2, 19 to 25. And the lectionary says that I'm supposed to talk about the first 10 verses of John 10, but that's a really bad place to stop. You need one more verse in there. So we're going to go from uh, to verse 11 because that's the most important verse. And you'll see why I say that in a minute. But <clears throat> I want to talk about what is the antidote to fear? And, and the antidote to fear is faith. It's recognizing there's something bigger than the thing that's causing your fears. So whether your fear is financial, whether your fear is this virus, whether it's whatever it is that's causing you to have fear in your life. Maybe your kids are going down a bad path and you can't stop it. Been there, done that. Maybe it's you're afraid for your job right now. There's a lot of things in the world that can cause fear right now. The, the antidote to that is, is faith. It's the recognition that whatever, however big your fears are, they're not terminal, but neither is death. That, that this life is not all there is, but there's one who's bigger than anything we fear because he's eternal. And so faith in that which is eternal Faith, particularly in Jesus, means you have eternal life as well. So this will not last. Whatever it is that's causing fear in your life will not last as long as faith in the one who is eternal. And so what is the opposite of fear? If faith is the um, antidote, then what's the opposite? What is it you get? Well, contrary to what some preach today, it's not health and wealth. That's not it at all. It's, in fact, nowhere promised that that's what you'll receive. There's a different word, and it's a far more important word, and it's peace. That's the opposite of fear, because the world is what it is. The, the storms will come. The viruses will come. Cancer will come. Whatever. All those things will come. But you have to live in the midst of that without allowing those things to destroy your life. And so peace is the antidote, is the opposite of fear. It's not prosperity. Jesus, when he came to the disciples a couple of weeks ago in our lesson, when he came behind the locked doors, 
when they were hiding for fear of the Jews. Twice, he said to them, peace be with you. When Thomas was there, the next time, peace was what Jesus spoke to them. He didn't tell them, don't worry, you have nothing to fear. He knew they did. He knew their destinies. He knew that many of them would be killed and crucified for following him. He didn't tell them, don't worry about that. Everything's going to be fine. He said, peace, shalom. Peace in the midst of the storm is what we're looking for. And there's only one who can bring us that peace. And that's the reason that I said I don't have any interest in stopping at verse 10 in that gospel lesson. Jesus is very clear here. Truly, truly, I say to you, he who does not enter the sheepfold by the door, but climbs in another way, that man is a thief and a robber. But he who enters by the door is the shepherd of the sheep. To him, the gatekeeper opens. The sheep hear his voice, and he calls his own sheep by name and leads them out. When he has brought out all his own, he goes before them, and the sheep follow him, for they know his voice. A stranger they'll not follow, but they will flee from strangers. This figure of speech Jesus used with them, but they did not understand what he was saying to them. Well, if they didn't understand it, then what's the hope of us understanding it without a little help, right? Because they lived in a place where there were shepherds and sheep. There are nowhere close to me. I mean, I've seen people work dogs and sheep and all that kind of stuff, but, but there's not where I live. There are not shepherds. I don't know a single shepherd. But what I do know is how this worked and what it looked like. And what's fascinating about this is they didn't stay in one field and shepherd their sheep. The so shepherd had to go out and find water, had to find good grass, had to take care of the sheep and had to protect them from everything that's around them. And that's what David was reflecting on when he reflects in Psalm 23 about the qualities and characteristics that make up a good shepherd. He's one that leads them into green pastures and takes them by still waters, whose rod and staff comfort him. He leads me in the way that he would have me go and takes him through the places of fear, the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for thou art with me. That's what it means to be a good shepherd. But part of being a shepherd then would be that there would be multiple shepherds in an area and they would move their flocks from place to place to find new good grazing ground. And they had to know in advance where those were likely to be. And they had to know also where sources of clear, still water were. They had to know where places were where they could lie down in those green pastures where they could rest, where they could be apart from their fears. They had to know that that rod and that staff were part of the shepherd's defensive weapons against predators. And so the rod and the staff comfort. But the other side of that is the rod and the staff sometimes were used on sheep that went astray as well. And they had to pull them back. They had to rescue them by the crook of, of that. And the rod had to be held over these sheep when they came in to make sure that everything was okay with them. So the rod and the staff, even though they could be used for punishment when sheep went astray, lest those sheep lead all the other sheep astray and lead them into danger, they comforted ultimately because it made sure they didn't go astray, but it also defensively used as weapons against any predator that might come against them. David knew these things because David was a shepherd. 
when Samuel came to the house of Jesse to identify the next king to follow Saul, David wasn't even there. Jesse, his father, didn't even bring him before Saul. Didn't think of him as the potential king. Brought all the other sons in. And then he said, well, there's one out tending the sheep. God seems to prefer people who tend sheep for some reason to lead his people. It's what Abraham was doing. Not Abraham. That's what Moses was doing when God called him. He was tending the flock of his father-in-law, Jethro. God has a propensity to call people who are shepherd-like, who understand human nature because of they know what it takes to lead people and to move people. And so here Jesus has given us an image of you've got multiple shepherds in a place and they build a sheepfold where at night all the shepherds and their sheep can come in. And so what Jesus begins by saying is, is that a shepherd, a true shepherd, is known to the gatekeeper, the one who is there to open the gate to let the shepherds in. He can speak, and that gatekeeper knows who he is. He identifies him, he trusts him, and he allows him to lead the sheep in. A thief and a robber comes over the top of the wall, doesn't come in by the gate. The next thing that Jesus talks about is that, that when they're ready to go out, the sheep hear his voice, he calls his own sheep by name and leads them out. It's a fascinating reality that uh, the way that worked was literally the sheep of a shepherd could all come out together and no other sheep come with them because they trusted their shepherd. They knew his voice. They loved him. They knew that he protected them. And so they would only respond to him. So each shepherd came out one at a time and they called their sheep out in the morning after they had kept them safe all night long. And they came out and they followed only their shepherd. So Jesus again said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, I am the door of the sheep. All who came before me are thieves and robbers, but the sheep did not listen to them. I'm the door. If anyone enters by me, he'll be saved and will go in and out and find pasture. The thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. I don't know about you, but, but I vote for abundant life. I would rather have abundant life than not, right? So I vote for abundant life. And if, if he says that he comes to provide that, then, I'll, then yes, I, I'll vote to be part of your flock. But the most important thing that's said there is actually the next verse, that 11th verse. I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for his sheep. That's the mark of a true good shepherd. But scripturally, there's only one of those, and it's God. It's always God. You can't possibly interpret the 23rd Psalm any way other than that shepherd David's speaking of is God. Later, through the prophets, like Ezekiel and Zechariah, God promises he will come and shepherd his sheep. He'll break the stats of the bad shepherds, and he himself will come and shepherd his sheep. So when Jesus says, I am the good shepherd, he's making a remarkable claim. He's not really making claim to be the Messiah they're thinking of. He's claiming equality with God. I am the good shepherd. There's only one. Only one good shepherd. Anywhere in the Bible. 
So when he makes that claim, he's claiming equality to God, and everybody knows it. It's one of the I am sayings of John's gospel where Jesus makes increasingly powerful, clear claims to who he is. Here he makes this extraordinary claim to be the good shepherd. And if you're a sheep, what you want desperately is that good shepherd. You want one you can trust. You want one who will indeed lay down his life for the sheep if that's what becomes necessary. And it's what he did. He laid down his life for his sheep, who Paul says were enemies of his at the time he laid him that laid down his life. Peter picks up on that same idea, and, and that's where he goes in that passage for today, which is 1 Peter 2, 19 to 25. He ends that with he himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might do <coughs> sorry, die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. For you were straying like sheep, but have now returned to the shepherd and the overseer of your souls. So in that passage prior to that, though, Peter has spoken to the, the Christians to whom he speaks there. He says that, that we're actually supposed to submit ourselves to authority over us, even when it's not righteous. And, and he says you do that as a Christian by, by identifying with Jesus who suffered the most unrighteous authority that's ever been in the world because man judged God and found him wanting, found him to be a sinner. So Peter's encouraging us to be like Jesus. And, and what he's basically saying is expect it. Don't expect to be applauded for following Jesus. Don't expect a, a suffering free life. And said, what he's saying is what Jesus had said to them, which is expect suffering, actually. But Jesus showed us the way to suffer injustice in our lives. We're watching right now, Suzanne and I are watching on Netflix, the six-part series, Waco about the Branch Davidians back in the 90s that um, who that their beliefs were not in line with <laughs> with what we believe. They put too much trust and faith in a man, and that man led them astray. But was that man leading them to a place where they were a threat to society? And the answer appears to be no. I, I knew it at the time, but now that I'm finding more and more about this, uh, through this miniseries, and I think it's something that's trustworthy, actually, because it's told from two perspectives. One is told from somebody who was there at the time inside as a member of the group, and then it's told by the negotiator from the FBI who ends up leaving the FBI because of what he sees as a horrible injustice, and it was the second one in a very short period of time uh, to have happened by the ATF and the, and the FBI. It's a, it's a powerful story. But it, but there's a there's a way of, of suffering injustice, and what you see in that is there's great injustice in this world, even by those who are set up to be, well, the Justice Department. It doesn't mean that that the response is you can't ever trust the government, but what it does mean is is that 
that you can't expect the government, even the Justice Department of the government, to be just and righteous. We're getting closer and closer to a time in my mind when, when we as Christians are going to be in an incredibly distinct minority and some of our beliefs, some of the truths that we hold are going to be not just unpopular, but not allowable to be spoken. Be that as it may, there's still a Christian response to all these things, and that Christian response is not to be afraid. It's to have faith, which brings peace in all these things, knowing who ultimately is in charge of everything, knowing he's eternal, knowing that he sent his son to die for unrighteous ones such as we, so that we might have eternal life. The antidote to that anger and to that that thing that causes people to kind of lose it, to be honest with you, and to, to move in a wrong direction in their response to the government. The, the way to do that is not actually to take up arms and bear it against the government unless it's the final uh, option. And I think we're a long, long way from that. It, it's to trust God, but it's also to remember all that he has done for us and all that he will do for us to remember that this life is not the final answer to anything to remember that it's not likely that this life is going to move in direction of righteousness and truth as we know it it's to move in a very different direction it's what we know as entropy in physics it, it doesn't move towards greater order. It's going to be moving towards greater chaos, and we need to be careful. We need to be smart, but we need to handle things the way Jesus did, who as chaos swirled all around him in the last day of his life, kept his wits about him and kept looking forward. Didn't become a violent man, didn't come here to lead a rebellion. He came to lay down his life for those that he loved. It's important that we follow his example. And how do we do that? Well, I think we do it by following Nehemiah and Ezra and the priests who came and rebuilt the temple in Jerusalem after the long exile in Babylon. What we have to remember is what Peter's saying was, you were like sheep going astray, and then he came and rescued you. And so our response should at least include, if not be focused on, praying for those who persecute us. If that time comes, we have to remember what Paul says, which is that our battle is not flesh and blood. It's a spiritual battle. And we need to fight that spiritual battle with spiritual tools. We need to fight that battle with prayer. We need to fight that battle with love. We need to fight that battle with faith. And and the way we come at that, and one of the things that we as Christians need to be better about doing in our own prayer life, but in, in the way that we build up our faith, is we remember all that he's done for us. We remember the cross because that's the most important thing he's ever done for us. But the other thing we do is, is that we remember that Peter was right, that we were like sheep going astray. We remember what Paul says. We were enemies of the cross when he died for us. We remember <clears throat> who we were 
and then we can rehumanize those who come against us, those who disagree with us, those who would persecute us. We have to always bear in mind that that one might be brother soon. We don't know what God's going to do and what, and but we do know that we're more likely to meet that person as a brother if we meet them in love now rather than anger and hatred because they too are created in the image of God. And that's an important thing. I'm going to start on that this week. Um, had some things going on this week that kind of prevented me from being able to begin that series, but, but I promise <laughs> next week, I promise. I want you to listen to how to fight this battle. So the the setting here is, is the people have come and, and they're rebuilding and they're, they, they've fought battles to protect the rebuilding of the walls of Jerusalem and they've, they've managed to win the day. They're truly a ragtag army. These are exiles coming back. They're, they're no more prepared for battle when they come back to Jerusalem with the king's permission and blessing, by the way. They're no more prepared to fight battles than were the Israelite slaves that came out of Egypt, and yet they did. And they defeated those who would come against them and those who would keep them from being able to rebuild that wall. And they rebuilt it in an incredible time, about 50-something days they did this. And so they, they rebuild the walls. But now the thing that has to be done, they build the walls so that they're protected from those same enemies. They have sort of the external part of their protection is in place. But now what has to happen is, is, is that Ezra and the priests begin to call the people to repent of sin. They got to deal with the internal enemy. Now that they're safe, now that they're protected at some level by these walls, they have to deal with the, with the enemy within, which is us and our tendency to stray. And so they call them to repent and they call them to pray. They call them first to hear the word of God. So they hear the word of God for a quarter of the day, it says. And then after they do that, they spend another quarter of the day making confessions and worshiping. And so then they came before the people, the Levites at all came before the people and said, Stand up and bless the Lord your God from everlasting to everlasting. Blessed be your glorious name, which is exalted above all blessing and praise. And so what did they call them to? They called them to do the important work of remembering. And here's what they say. Listen to, to the verbs that you'll hear in here, and I'll highlight those while I read this. You are the Lord. You alone. You have made heaven the heaven of heavens with all their host, the earth and all that's on it, the sea and all <clears throat> that's in them. And you preserve all of them and the host of heavens worships you. It's important to remember the greatness, the grandeur of God by remembering he's the one who created all things and that nothing that was created was made without him, as John tells us in the word was the agent through whom all this were made. So it's important to begin with worshiping him and his greatness. And then it goes from there to you are the Lord, the God who chose Abram and brought him out of Ur of the Chaldees and gave him the name Abraham, the father of nations. You found his heart faithful before you and you made with him the covenant to give to his offspring, the land of the Canaanite, the Hittite, the Amorite, the Perizzite, the Jebusite, and the Girgashite. And you have kept your promise for you are righteous. 
So it's important to recall our beginnings. It's important to go back to the beginning of that covenant time. It's important to go to the cross. But it's important to move beyond the cross to the resurrection. Because that's the, the motion that we always need to be making. We always need to go back to the cross because it's there we receive forgiveness. It's that which keeps us humble. But it's important that God kept his promise by raising Jesus from the dead. And you saw the affliction of our forefathers in Egypt and you heard their cry at the Red Sea and performed signs and wonders against Pharaoh and all his servants and all the people of the land. For you knew that they arrogantly acted against our fathers and you made a name for yourself as it is to this day and you divided the sea before them so that they went through in the midst of the sea on dry land and you cast their pursuers into the depths as a stone into mighty waters by a pillar of cloud you led them in the day and by a pillar of fire in the night to light for them the way in which they should go you came down on Mount Sinai and spoke with them from heaven and gave them right rules and true laws, good statutes and commandments. And you made known to them your holy Sabbath and commanded them <coughs> commandments and statutes and a law by Moses, your servant. You gave them bread from heaven for their hunger and brought water for them out of the rock for their thirst. And you told them to go in to possess the land that you had sworn to give them. It's important to remember that all that God's done for us, it's important to know church history. It's important to know what has come before us so that we could recite these same things in the way that God has protected and preserved his church. But we also need to remember the blood of the martyrs. Everybody didn't escape with their life. We need to remember and we need to know the history of the church so that we can pray like that. Because you see, salvation history didn't end with the resurrection and the ascension of Jesus. That's the reason that Luke chose to write the Acts of the Apostles because what he wanted to say was, hey, Theophilus, to whom this, those books are written, both the Gospel and the book of the Acts, Theophilus, it didn't end there. It continues to this day. He wanted to bring Theophilus, his, his um, audience, up to date. He wants to say, because by the power of the Holy Spirit, this thing perseveres, not in Jesus now, but in the name of Jesus through people, through other human beings. God's continuing that work. And so he wanted Theophilus to know it didn't stop at the resurrection. No, 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 no. It, it only kind of really got started in a whole lot of ways there. Because after Pentecost, listen to these crazy things that happened. Look how it spread throughout the Roman Empire through the work of men, through the work of women. The gospel spread and the work continues. Miracles continue to happen in Jesus' name through these people. The powerful things that began with Jesus, Theophilus, didn't end with his death, didn't end with his ascension. No, it continued through the church. And the thing that we need to be able to be good at is not just knowing the gospel, not just knowing the book of Acts, but also knowing the ways in which God persevered through the church down the centuries, no matter how bad persecution got, because it got bad quickly. They were kicked out of Jerusalem 
And then it began to be kicked out of many other places, ending when the temple <coughs> came down in Jerusalem. And the Christians were blamed. And persecution broke out again and again and again against the church. And yet, in spite of all that, the church perseveres because it's not a human invention. It's God's thing. And nothing, no weapon formed against it will stand because it's God's. We're just caretakers. We're the ones who are called, chosen, and honored to carry this forward in our lifetimes and preserve it for the future. It begins with knowing how we got here. It begins with faith, and your faith can only be strengthened by knowing the history of the church, the history of how the church has survived and thrived in times of persecution and famine and plague. And then we stand in faith, which brings peace, that no matter what happens around us, we're secure because of Jesus. We're secure because of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. We know that we will share in his inheritance and we too will have eternal life. This is Faith Seeking Understanding and I, again, I'm John Green and I'm thankful that you're here with me today. And um, if you have anything that, that you'd like to bring in prayer, that you'd like me to be in prayer about, or you'd like to share any comments you'd like to make, um, please do so on the Facebook site or here on the Anchor FM site. Thank you for listening today.